Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And today we're talking about Narita Boy. Boy, 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 boy. <laughs> Developed by Studio Koba and published by Team 17, it was released March 30th, 2021 for Windows, Mac, Switch, PS4, and Xbox One. And as usual, we'll be talking spoilers, so heads up if you're sensitive to that. So this was a game that I saw, you know, on Twitter, uh, would see some like screenshot Saturday things for it. It was absolutely gorgeous. Like the pixel art of this game is crazy good. Um, but I remember seeing those and then it kind of like fell out of my... Um, I don't know, fell out of my attention span for a little while and uh, saw the game was on sale maybe a couple months ago and picked it up and it turns out, well, I didn't miss much in the meantime because it was uh, a Kickstarter game, I think, that was supposed to be in 2017. They raised a bunch of money. It was supposed to be released in 2018 and delayed for three years. So it was released in 2021. Yeah, you check back in just in time to, to reap the benefits of that uh, long-standing Kickstarter commitment. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't really have this on my radar until until you brought it to me. Like, I thought I, I had vaguely been aware of it in the background, but it, um, it just looked pretty, but I hadn't really heard much about it otherwise. And I'm so glad that you brought it to the, the table. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here, but not the least of which, as you said, is the art itself, um, chiefly done by the creative director and CEO, Eduardo Fornielis, and uh, it is truly stunning, like you said, uh, like generationally really cool looking. <laughs> yeah, like uh, there's this kind of stick figure style in pixel art, and I've never really been a fan of it, but this game did it so well uh, that it's hard not to not to love it just for that. Yeah, I mean, on top of that, it's uh, clearly like playing with some serious referential nostalgia factor uh, here. You know, you have um, sort of an 80s renaissance going on in the the broader world with your Stranger Things and your Tron remakes and kind of your remakes of everything that came out in the 80s, uh, looking at us millennials as uh, <laughs> key consumers here. But <laughs> um, this is uh, taking that and, and just putting its really awesome, loving spin on it uh, from everything from an aesthetic perspective. And it, it resonates with me. Uh, wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Tron. I mean, that that is almost a perfect summary of this game's plot as well. You have the digital kingdom invaded by a malicious program called Him. And a young video game player is sucked into his computer and becomes Narita Boy, 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 Boy. Boy. Um, you know, this was probably yours and mine childhood fantasy to be sucked into a video game world and save the world there. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly what we spent most of our time doing outside in the backyard, um, you know, just hmm. pretending we were video game characters and things of that nature. Um, Grab sticks, beat each other. We learned it from video games first. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I found I, I was as so I was looking into sort of the developer's story and and seeing how they sort of came to this idea. Apparently, um, the director uh, Eduardo that I mentioned before says that he had childhood experiences growing up not only in Spain but also spending time living in Japan, which influenced the aesthetic. And I think that's interesting because this game clearly does have like a myriad 
of different influences, not only media properties from the 80s, but also Japanese culture and things of that nature. And I think it's really interesting to the kind of um, line it walks between the, those two things. Because uh, when I first saw this, uh, the, you know, screenshots and trailer and all that, I was really thinking it was like hyper 80s, 80s all the way, you know, take that and crank it up to 11. And it is. But it also has this aesthetic sensibility that I think is very consciously modeled after uh, certain Japanese style arts, um, especially some of the memory scenes that we'll talk about later on. Um, but again, that's an interesting thing for the 1980s because the video game scene was very heavy in Japan at that time. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think you hit something on the head that I think is what made me like this game, um, if not like the entirety of it from, say, a holistic, mechanical, and narrative and thematic perspective, at least the, the latter of those two, um, is that it isn't just a crass sort of nostalgia play like a, and I know this gets like paraded out and beaten to death, but a Ready Player One. You know, it's not just referential humor, <laughs> referential references all the way down. It is, it's own unique aesthetic like the design here the style um it may be drawing on 80s themes and, and things but it's doing it in an interesting way like there's a crt filter on this obviously uh, i mentioned or we, we talked a little bit about it off mic but it's very like thick and well done but also most of the people on screen their heads are crts and it's, you know, there's interesting and imaginative designs for the characters, the enemies, that I haven't really seen anything quite like. Like, it's 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 definitely near to and adjacent to some of the things we mentioned, like a Tron or a, um, something like that, but it's not one-to-one. It is definitely its own specific style. Oh, yeah, the character design in this game was fantastic. Like, um... I mean, Narita Boy himself is kind of like a standard-ish hero, but a lot of the uh, NPCs that you meet along the way, or a lot of the enemies that you'll be fighting as well, have some pretty great enemy designs. Like, I think this game punches above its weight class in style. Yeah, and, and not even just with uh, characters and enemies, but with the environments. The environments are gorgeous and really imaginative as well. Like, half the impetus for me to get to a new area was just to see what the next sort of background and staging was and how they would do that with the pixel art style that they have on the screen. Um, and of course, to hear the music present, because um, we'll talk more about the music later, but the the soundtrack for this is just absurd, and it's absurd by, by absurd, I mean great. It's incredible. <laughs> mm-hmm. It really just has that whole aesthetic package uh, of the 80s tech, retro techno future on, on lockdown. Um, it's very cool, and some of the enemy designs are surprisingly varied. Like, I, I didn't think when I started this game, when they introduced like the first few enemies, that I would be getting a new one literally every like 15 minutes for the entire runtime of the game, you know? Yeah, it's they they kind of have a surprising number of enemies in there, and um, each of them have their own little ticks. Uh, none of them are, or most of them are fairly simple uh, in and of themselves, but the different combos of things the game throws at you. I think that's where a lot of the combat interestingness comes from. 
yeah, yeah, we should talk more about the, the combat later for sure, but um, I think it's interesting, like, some of the, as, as long as we're on the topic of art and style, some of the things they did with symbols and some of the things they did with sort of recurring themes, like the trichroma, the colors, uh, red, blue, yellow, um, were really important, and the main symbol that is emblazoned on your character's chest, the Naka kanji, which stands for center or equilibrium. Um, all of that is like surprisingly resonant with the through line of the game. And I I didn't expect that when I started it. You know, I thought they were just drawing on some of these cool elemental fundamental things in life, but they found a really interesting way to weave that into the narrative as well. Oh, they really they do for sure. Like um like even that sword you have, the trichroma sword. It's the you know techno the red sword, please. techno sword. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> uh, but it's it's the red, blue, yellow sword. In this game, it takes that primary color theme and just splashes it everywhere. Like the digital kingdom has three houses: red, blue, and yellow. And later on, you find out in the storyline that each of those represents a very significant part of the creator's life. Like um. The red beam is sorrow and loss, and the um, the yellow ble- beam is his is the creator's mother who he lost at a young age, and then the blue beam the blue is Narita boy yourself who spoiler uh you are the creator's son the one who gets sucked into the video game. <laughs> I love that reveal at the end. Um, that was such a neat little like. I, I guess you could kind of see it coming. Um, but I, th- I thought it was really interesting how they showed that this story wasn't just like uh, power fantasy. You go into a video game. It was tying in themes of family and themes of sort of um, regret uh, by the creator himself and uh, figuring out how to make good on that. Um, and, and a lot of sort of familial things that you see in a lot of movies from this era. I, I guess I'm thinking like a, the most obvious one is um you son rescuing the father from the red is basically star wars <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that that was a uh, coming out that around the 80s too wasn't it yeah some uh, a little before then but yeah mm-hmm. now i think let's talk about those memories a little bit because i thought that was like what elevated this game for me like you said it could have been a crass 80s all the way kind of thing but the memories really kind of gave it its heart. So the plot of the game is that him, the malicious program previously referred to, has erased the creator's memories, the creator being the godlike programmer who, you know, created the digital kingdom and powers it and everything. He's like, you know, old bald dude <laughs> with a pot belly and everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, classic 80s, what, what people think programmers looked like in the 80s. Um, but like, uh, so him has deleted his memories and you, Narita boy, have to go around the digital kingdom, unlocking these memories and restoring them to the creator so he can code away the problem. Yeah, it's, uh, as you said, surprisingly poignant in those scenes. Like, since they're memories of the creator and you're tasked with restoring them, you're getting a snapshot at various important moments of the creator's life. Um, you're revisiting his childhood where he lost his mother and then his father going into, you know, descending into alcoholism and eventually leaving the family. And then, you know, him striking out on his own and 
uh, becoming this technologically gifted person that he is and eventually creating the Narita One upon which you are apparently playing the game that you're playing, as well as Narita Boy, the game you are playing as the <laughs> titular Narita Boy. Um, it's mm-hmm. all very like nice and neat and symmetrical, but not in an obvious or simple way. It sounds simple when I'm explaining it, but it's it believe me, it's not simple when you're sitting and playing it the first time. Yeah, no, I, I like it. And I liked in the memory hall how you could go back and revisit any of the previous memories each time you were going through there. Made it nice to catch up on the story. And you might be surprised, I did notice the music when we were inside the memory hall. <laughs> it's just yeah. really nice, like, piano-ish music box kind of stuff playing in the background that really is such a change from, like, the heavy synth wave of mm. everything else. No, you're right. It's definitely a really nice tonal change for for those scenes. And um, at the end of the day, like it really sets that nice mood because it's about reminiscing. It's about this dad um, who, you know, the, the creator who worked too hard and neglected his family. And then I guess, you know, is made good eventually by his son. Um, and it, it just, <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound trite, but it reminds me of that meme that instead of going to therapy meme, men will literally make an entire video game console empire for their son to tell him their feelings instead of going to therapy. <laughs> oh, yes, that meme. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's also very 80s, too, for the fathers not to show any appreciation or anything. No, it's it's true. Um, see Pokemon or a bajillion other examples. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's a good call a good poll. And I, I, I think it was a nice bit of levity because usually it came at the end of like an action sequence and you needed a bit of good time to decompress. And mm. it, it had a really nice, um, way of letting the player chill out for a second, get a bit of, uh, you know, it, it functioned like an RPG campfire scene right like it was a way to mm-hmm. get some dialogue some exposition some character building after the big moment where you just need a moment to chill out and i i quite enjoyed that and most of these memories would come after a boss set piece or something like that um and you know we talked about the story of the creator's life when you go through it it's it's not all uh, you know peaches and cream and everything the guys gone through some hard stuff but uh in the game itself too there's some pretty heavy low-key moments like there's i don't know if gory is the right word but there's like you know some you see some digital entities who are like disemboweled or crucified or something at different points um use and then there's like softer moments too i remember there was once in the blue kingdom where i went into someone's house and that person was watching their brother's death on an infinite loop on a projector screen and it's yeah it's like uh very heavy storytelling or very um it's, it's like heavy, but also kind of like very economical too. Like you go in there, you see that scene for five seconds and you're just kind of hit with the weight of it. Yeah, the, the we've talked a lot about sort of the writing as it regards these memories so far, but you know, you're absolutely right that in the other side of that coin in the game itself, there's all of these really interesting little pastiches or, um, you know, bottle rooms as it is, you know, just one little room that tells a story with, you know, a character who has a story, the one, the one you mentioned about 
um, the sort of immersion therapy of coping with their sibling's death is tragic, of course. But there's a lot of other really interesting ones like that uh, peppered throughout the the world. And they're not there for any purpose except to just tell that one tiny little one-scene story, which is, and of course, to flesh out the world. And it just shows like the amount of care that went into this. Um, one other thing I want to mention about the writing, though, is there's just a ton of jargon right up front. You know, like they're very into like creating a world and the lore and the backstory and the organizations at play and the kingdoms at play and sort of like, I guess, sort of like doing a sleight of hand of trying to make it look like there's a Lord of the Rings level um, genealogy behind all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> and yeah. who knows, maybe there is. <laughs> no, I get, I get that too. Like, I felt the plot was very, um, the plot was very starting at sixty miles an hour sort of stuff. Like, oh, here's this name we've never mentioned before. You're, you should know that it's important just from the way we're talking about it. Uh, but it's kind of like the writing is trying to get you to assume a certain weight or gravitas to it that it hasn't earned yet. I, I think you're right that it didn't earn it in the moment, but it kind of like by the sheer fact of the amount of times it just continued to like bombard you with a, a you know a new detail, a new background, a new faction that plays into the faction you just heard about ten minutes ago. It kind of like gets you bought in, like the amount of earnestness that it has on display for its own uh, bullshit, for lack of a better word, is um, really like it, it kind of like it gets you halfway there. And if you're like at all interested in it, you'll, or at least if you're a lore fiend like me, you'll suppress the urge to blush and sort of get into it yourself. <laughs> no, I I get that. I, I'm with you on that. I feel like the way they introduce the digital kingdom, like it's not a bad lore or anything. No, not at um, all. It did better in its quiet little moments, though, than in the overarching themes. Like, um, when you find, you have to find the guy, he's like a hermit, and, you know, the characters, the, the small characterizations you saw, heard about him, like, oh, he ran away from da-da-da-da, he fought with these guys, da-da-da, now he's hiding. That that was okay, but like, oh, he has he keeps a couple of sheep outside. Like that was like techno sheep. What I'm here for, the techno (laughs) sheep. (laughs) Because I I think if there's one thing I want to make sure we point out is that all of the lore, quote unquote, is like um, interspersed with techno babble, right? Like you need to retrieve the sacred floppy disk and, you know, find the USB key of truth. And it's like techno babble crossed with spiritualism. And uh, if that sounds tiring, it absolutely is. I got tired of it pretty quickly, but the game was so all in on it that I found it admirable enough to continue. <laughs> Maybe that, like, uh, coming from a programming background, I was just more for it because of that, just because of, like, mm-hmm. it was goofy, but it was, like, I got some of the more obscure in-jokes, maybe. No, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I was there with you, and that is another reason why I, I felt like it was worth continuing. Like, it, it was clear to me that thought was placed on these things, right? Like, if we're designing a world where um, the mother figure is a certain part of a computer, oh, the motherboard, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um, they they used the technobabble to good effect. It wasn't all complete nonsense. It was nonsense to a purpose.
One of the things that you mentioned earlier that I want to circle back to a little bit is you um, you called them bottle rooms, like a little ship in a bottle sort of thing. Uh, to me, that was the most absurd thing about this game, was the amount of effort and the number of these tiny little bottle rooms that you came across. I think I was in the desert at one point. Um, would have been the... Gosh, I don't know, the Yellow Desert? One of the Yellow Deserts? Yellow Kingdom, the desert in the Yellow Kingdom, yeah. Yeah, and I entered into a room, and it took me five seconds to grab the key from a guy and walk out. But then I walked back in, I'm like, wait a second, what was that room there? And I walked in this absolutely gorgeous inside, this amazing scene, highly detailed. And it's like, it's almost like the developer didn't care that you saw that, or I... I did say that until I read an interview by the developer earlier on, um, where he said that he thought that like um, one of the ways he could keep players going throughout the game wasn't just having like a mechanically sound game, but another motivation could be keeping up this element of surprise. And I think the bat bottle scenes did great at being like you stumble across them, and it's just like this gorgeous little piece of artwork that you get to observe for a little bit. I totally agree with that. And you know what it reminds me of weirdly is Stray. Um, all the like little apartment buildings that you could wander your way into and you just get this little treat of like a gorgeously decorated, gorgeously lit, um, you know, perfectly proportioned room that tells a story about one of the companion robots in, in that game. You know, beautiful little spaces about something that happened in the world. And it rewards the player for exploring and it rewards them for paying attention. Um, the only thing I maybe didn't like is uh, sometimes they would kind of force the player into that type of observation through backtracking, <laughs> but we'll get more into that when we talk about the mechanical aspects. Speaking of those mechanical aspects, um, yeah, this game had, I think it did have some backtracking. I feel like it had less as the game went on, um, but thinking back to like the, before you get to the digital kingdoms and the yellow kingdom, especially, I felt like there was a large amount of backtracking. Oh, and when you beat the blue kingdom, you don't go back the way you came, but you are you expected that you should so mm -hmm. that I did some backtracking in vain there and had to backtrack on my backtracking to go forward then. Um, so yeah, there's there, there was backtracking in this game. I remember thinking about that at the beginning of the game, but deciding that I didn't mind it so much just because the environments were so gorgeous. I'd be like, okay, well I got to backtrack, but I can't look at this giant elevator scene again. Sure. That's true. I mean, I, I mentioned that earlier and that like the amount of traversal you do in this game is in service of allowing you to observe the art. And I think that to that extent, it is successful. You know, it brings you to a bunch of different places. You see a bunch of different interesting things on a second pass. Maybe you observe something you didn't see the first time. That is all well and good. But I, I think in terms of like the mechanics at play here, you know, the, the given loop for any area is basically just jumping places, activating things, um, running back and forth once you have the appropriate key, 
beat the boss and, and move on, um, sometimes interspersed by um, meditating, quote unquote, by which they mean frantically pressing the Y button, which I found hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, their, their meditation is like the most adrenaline fueled meditation you can imagine. Meditate, meditate, meditate. <laughs> <laughs> like the most competitive CrossFit person you can think of trying to do yoga, but do it all the way. Yeah, uh, but to, to that point, like, usually when you're meditating, you're meditating on three symbols that you have to find, and those symbols are hidden throughout the environments nearby. So what they're doing with that, um, besides making a hilarious joke about um, very uh, earnest meditation, is making you observe the environment and, you know, trying to make you observant of your surroundings. And if you're not going to do it for the story purposes or the lore or the background or just the gorgeous art, well, then you're going to do it to progress the game, goddammit. <laughs> no, I gotcha. And there were some nice uh, grace notes. Like uh, in the Blue Kingdom, one of those symbols is on a whale that you have to call over and jump out of the water. Which, by the way, they had to draw a whole whale and, and animate <laughs> a whole whale to do that. I think that's kind of like the game's philosophy. Uh, but, you know, thinking about the backtracking, too, um, I'm wondering if they needed it. Like, this game's not a Metroidvania where you get new abilities and different things happen. You get a key and you go back from the way you came. Like, I didn't mind it because I got to look at the art again, but I feel that that's a pretty... Um, I don't. I guess bold move, power move. If you're like, okay, everyone, everyone is gonna have to go through here again, and I hope you enjoy it. Looking at the art again because you have to do it to keep it playing. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, and you you brought up Metroidvania, and I would agree with you that this really doesn't, to me, like strike me as a Metroidvania, more of an just an action platformer, a very gorgeous one with some light Metroidvania elements, but to me, like. I don't want to judge it as a Metroidvania because the strength to me of a Metroidvania is the extent to which it hides the lock key lock new move, which is a key lock archetype effectively. And the cooler the way you can make those things hidden, the more likely it to me it is that you have a good Metroidvania on your hands, you know, contextualize mm -hmm. it, narratively justify it, ludically justify it. That is like the whole purpose of, you know, the lock and key system of a Metroidvania. And this game was interesting, and rather than, like, giving you a new ability and letting it unlock new areas going ahead, it unlocks a single door, and you go through and you don't use that ability again. It's like this ability as a kind of, like, fun little surprise you find along the way, like when you turn into a deer, or you ride the server horse, or uh, <laughs> later on, you get to be Big Narita going Godzilla-style through the city. Like, all of those are, like, one-and-done sort of things. Your gigantic Narita Voltron robot. Yeah, I know we played a game that did this before, like a Metroidvania that basically the power-ups were just locks for keys in a very transparent way. And I guess that's what I was getting at in short with my my long description is is that um, when they when a game does that and, and makes a very specific built for purpose ability, quote unquote, that you don't really find much other use for, um, that's a strike against sort of the, the Metroidvania points, not necessarily a strike against like what the game may be trying to do in general. Like in this game's case, it's probably just doing it to make cool animations because that's clearly what it's focused on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. This game um, is not a Metroidvania at all. And I think you can almost get a little genre whiplash 
if you go mm-hmm. into it expecting that. What I what we did mention is, you know, you are gaining abilities in a Metroidvania style, and generally speaking, they're they're uh, services to traverse, you know, as you mentioned, the situational ones, Big Narita, Servo Horse, Floppy Board are, are ones, but you're getting ones that you're keeping too. You know, you're getting a, an air dash, you're getting um, an upward slash that increases your height, you're getting a ground pound to let you break through certain barriers. But as you mentioned, Josh, these are very situational and there's no backtracking involved to sort of heighten the exploratory aspects of this. It's all sort of straight line. One thing to point out is there is a single collectible in the game. You can find five mm. pieces of a floppy disk. And, like, if anybody thinks it's a Metroidvania, just be like, well, what do you collect? Screenshots? <laughs> I certainly did. <laughs> but that's, that's just me. <laughs> um, some of them will be on the website. Um, but, no, I, I, think, I, I think you could be harsh and say that a lot of these situational mechanics are gimmicks like the horse uh, the servo horse and the floppy surfing to me like read a bit gimmicky they were like gorgeously enacted but man in particular that servo horse section was a bit rough <laughs> doable <laughs> but rough <laughs> yeah yeah the the i feel like it's kind of like the mini game sort of thing it's like mm-hmm. a mini game to break up the pacing a little bit uh, and then again, just show you something new and fun that's different than what you've seen before. Yeah, I finally figured out what game I was trying to think of where the lock and key were very transparent. And it was Carrion. Um, you remember mm. Carrion? Mm-hmm. That was the yeah. one that I was I was trying to think of as sort of like a barely a Metroidvania, Metroidvania. Um, <laughs> and like this game, it didn't have a map. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know that necessarily I felt like I needed one in this game. Um, I would have liked it just so I could see like a list of all of the rooms because the rooms had cool names too. Um, yeah, th- uh, like the binary pastures or things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's evocative, you know, and like everything else with the writing of this game, it's going for this very specific theme in a very, you know, uh, turn it up to 11 sort of way. And I enjoyed that aspect of it, but... You know, I think maybe we could talk a bit about the basic verbs. You know, we talked about the uh, the Metroidvania aspect, the the things you gain as well. But I want to talk a bit about like how did you find just the the platforming, the climbing, the combat. Um, maybe I'll start with the platforming because I feel like this jump is not great. It just doesn't feel that great or controllable to me. I always felt like everything with the movement, from the jumping to the swordplay, was just a, a little sluggish. And I don't know if that was like a I played this on the Switch. I don't know where you played it, but... I did it on the Switch as well. I thought the platforming and everything was fine. Like, um, I don't recall myself particularly missing jumps. Um, you mentioned the server ho- horse, and I think I spent uh, maybe three or four times getting through that section, but it wasn't like, you know, I think it was like 10 or 15 minutes. It wasn't like a... Yeah. You know... Th- I've, I've just been playing Elden Ring a little bit ago. <laughs> I was just uh, about so to say that. <laughs> I, I was not throwing any controllers anywhere. Um, yeah, I, th- I felt like the platforming bits were serviceable. I like the combat for this game. I've heard other people did not. They felt it was too clunky, too stiff. Um, but, like, timing-wise, it got in a good feel for me. Like, um, 
besides your basic sword slashing and everything else, uh, there is one move you have, a heal, which you will use. And the heal gets charged up by whacking people with your techno sword. So it was a good balance of like, you got to get in there and then you got to back out and quickly pull off their heal or two while they're charging up their attacks. You know, I saw what they were going for with this and it is Hollow Knight um, Mm -hmm. to a T. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I'll start with the good. From a combat perspective, I feel like the techno sword feels good and looks even better. The trichroma theme comes through in spades. It's an awesome <laughs> like weapon. Um, I like the sort of standard melee attack and then the stronger sort of dash attack and then the shotgun attack with R2 and the like charged like face blast. Like all of that like was cool. Like right off the bat. Who doesn't love a good face blast? <laughs> Someone's going to clip that out of context. Um <laughs> <laughs> All those verbs they give you starting out, I think, are very good. But um, they don't, the verbs they do add, to me, didn't transform combat. And even with all of the various enemies we talked about at the very beginning, I don't feel like there was enough added to keep it interesting. Combat sort of quickly became rote to me. And I do want to acknowledge the fact that they added the color changing and the summon spells, but um, it wasn't quite enough to win me over. It still felt a little more style over substance. I don't think I did the summon spells once, except when <laughs> they were tutorialized. So, yeah, I forgot about those. Yeah, the the color changing flames, it could have been cool, um, but I feel like it's another thing where it's like, okay, if you can find a little time away from attacks in order to <laughs> switch over, then you can quickly engage in this uh, high stakes game of chicken against a particular <laughs> enemy. Um, it wasn't something I'd use very often, maybe on some of the tougher elite-type enemies, um, but generally speaking, no. Um, I feel like the dash was really good. Like um, It had a good feel to it. I got the timing down with that very well, and it was learning when to come in, learning when to back out, and avoid the different... Um, areas of attack that the enemies would be coming up from, whether it was like the beams shooting up from the ground, the bats, those damn bats coming in from everywhere. bats. The bats. bats, I like the bats at the end, but they did frustrate me a bit. I I appreciated them as time went on, though. Yeah, the the bats were definitely some of the more frustrating enemies, and I'll continue to say I think the, the enemy variety here was good, but I think there wasn't just, there wasn't quite enough need for me to adjust my tactics to take those enemies on um as there i guess there wasn't as much variety in the need for me to use different tactics as there was in the appearance of the enemies themselves which were pretty strikingly varied and and, you know to a one extremely well designed yeah if you're comparing this game to hollow knight um i do think like especially with the heal that was something they learned from hollow knight but i don't think they were going for hollow knight either hollow knight i had ways to do deal with enemies uh many different ways and this game was much more straightforward like there's no ranged build here no absolutely this is it, it, you yeah. 
you're asking for a harsh comparison if you're comparing almost anything to Hollow Knight, but especially this game and its <laughs> combat. Now, if we were saying like the respective art styles of those two games side by side, I think you'd have a fairer fight. But, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, that's not what this game's focused on. This game's not really as focused on the, the combat side of things, and that's okay. You know, every game's got its strengths and its um, its weaknesses and its flaws. But I think to, to that end, like, as you said earlier, serviceable is um, kind of where where I landed on it. It didn't like keep me from enjoying the game, but it was definitely a you know when I saw one of those combat arenas where you're locked into a screen and you have to kill the um, enemy combo du jour that they are throwing at you with whatever flames are above their heads. I just saw okay, well, um, I know what I need to do. This has become rote, and now it's just execution. I think their strategy was not to be tactically deep combat, but their strategy was to throw enough new enemies at you often enough that like you don't have to do the same pair of enemies much in the game. Like, okay, you beat the uh you beat the armored punchy guy and the sword guy together. Well, now we have a t- completely new type of enemy to worry about. Um and it's more like learning how to deal with them or what their attack patterns were that I think kept the combat good for me. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. But I, I think it was, at the end of the day, it's still just sort of, to me, served as like a a way to keep me moving forward, uh, a speed bump, if you will, between um, a speed bump, albeit with great music, because the combat music, along with every other <laughs> piece of music in this game, you know, strikes the perfect tone. Did you get through the Red Kingdom? Uh, I just, I kind of had started the Red Kingdom as we began our discussion, and then I just decided to look up the rest because I think I got what I needed. (laughs) I think there's a boss battle you would have appreciated there, where Mm. there's a um, 1980s hair metal band that you have to fight. Oh, really? I'll have to look this one up. Or rather, there's a combat arena in front of them. Um, But it's a... Again, like, that's the little bottle scene we were talking about before, except this one has a lot of, you know, sword swinging and everything in front of it, too. Hmm, I like that. Yeah, I, I, so you're saying they were in the background, drawn as pixel art, and then you were fighting sort of in front of them. Yeah, that's how I remember it. Cool. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Like, I, I like how they can sort of use the, the various strengths, you know, the background art, the scene setting, the lore, and of course the music to like amp up what would otherwise be a pretty standard combat encounter. I think that's that's a, a well-observed piece of, of work there. Play to the strengths, yeah. So speaking of uh, playing to your strengths and, and setting the scene, I think nothing in this game did that better than its incredible synthwave uh, soundtrack, which brings all of the 80s synth pop uh, that you have been craving since you were, uh, if, if you're me, um, I guess something like a Paradise Killer uh, into <laughs> the foreground. <laughs> um, 
it, it really is great. You know, these sort of ambient new age electronic tracks alongside like pulse pounding, uh, things that could be straight out of a Daft Punk uh, album or, you know, some other sort of 80s dance hall situation. It just was like to a T and to a one really well done pieces of music for this soundtrack. I mean, they even have the synth master character who you have to go collect a key from after you give him enough keys. Um, But then he sends you off to the different three houses to go fight through. We need to mention the name of the composer here, who is Salvador uh, Fornielis, who goes by Salvinsky. And um, it's just an incredible amount of sort of skill on display here with um, synth wave crafting. I think this is the person they should work with on the next Cyberpunk 2077 official soundtrack. Um, if you're asking <laughs> me, uh, the chops are clearly here. I found an interesting quote uh, from uh, Salvinsky when I was looking up sort of what the influences for this were, and it is. It goes something like this: uh, Synth wave is music that, when you listen to it, takes you back to the 80s. Synth wave is modern electronic music made with sounds and tools that have an 80s signature, but a bit different. And I think that's really well observed. I think about things like the intro song to Stranger Things or just the soundtrack to Stranger Things, where clearly it's like 80s inspired, but they're doing it with this modern high fidelity touch. Um, It's what you remember the 80s being like, not what it actually was like. You know, I think that's a good quote to apply to the pixel art style as well, because Mm -hmm. uh, these pixels aren't in your classic pixel grid where you have like 200 by 120 resolution or something like that. Like they're they're squares, but they're not on that grid over there. And you can do so much smoother animation there, but it still Mm. has that chunky look. And again, it's like um, what you remember pixel art looking like when your imagination can fill in some details. No, that, that's a that's a very good point, and um, it sounds, um, I, I guess, using like higher fidelity than what an '80s video game would have, but using the same sort of style of those things. Um, I guess it's like taking a modern or an '80s movie soundtrack and digitizing, and if you will, like chiptunitizing it, rather than going the other way. You know, taking the the lower fi thing and upresing it. Um, uh, I think one of the original soundtracks that they said they were trying to play off of was like John Carpenter movies, um, mm-hmm. which totally tracks for me. Um, you know, taking John Carpenter movie soundtracks and um, turning those into um, something more along the lines of a video game soundtrack rather than, than vice versa. Well, you know, one interesting thing is you say like taking a 1980s video game soundtrack. I'll push back on that because the 1980s video games were not trying to sound like the 1980s. They were all <laughs> trying to be... You know, we have the best sound fonts here. Look at our strings library. Look at how close we sound like to an orchestra. Whereas, like, I'm sure that some games probably broke this trend. Actually, the first one I can think of is Toe Jam and Earl, and that was, like, early 90s. Uh, get into the funk uh, aesthetic. New Jack Swing and all that. Um, and I remember it being notable for doing that, too, at the time. But, yeah, like... The 1980s video games with the soundtracks they should have had. Toe Jam and Earl, the first roguelike I ever played. <laughs> True story. <laughs> yeah. I, no, will, I mean, I will die on that hill. No, I, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I think it definitely sort of has that structure, but we're getting far afield. Um, with regards to audio in this game, Narita Boy, which we just played. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think the audio is strong not only in 
the music, but also sort of in the entire signature in general, like the use of the digitized voices, the rest in force every time you die. Rest in force. Narita Boy up top. And all of the various sort of um, various little voices that the characters do. Like it's all extremely well observed digitized sound for like what feels like 80s, you know, which I guess is the logline for this game. Yeah, I agree with that. I was a huge fan of the sound design and the music of this game. I felt like they really added to that kind of like everything 80s kind of experience. All 80s all the time. So the ending for this game, you go through you go through all three colored houses and you save the capital city of the digital kingdom from giant bad guys um and then you defeat him finally um and you kind of learn the backstory behind him and the creator and how they kind of like feed off of each other or interface with each other and how like the creator started that weird cult for a little Mm -hmm. while uh so you get to the end there and there's is of course the final fight Um, But you triumph over him, he escapes into the real world, and then you pop out of uh, the Narita Boy Council with the knowledge that you are the son of the creator. That's right, yeah, so you you emerge from the council, Um, the creator, Lionel, is there, you have defeated him, the sort of Lord of the Red, who is the main antagonist. Uh, leader of the Stallions, which, by the way, is a reference to Wild Stallions from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, this really interesting thing happens where, um, you know, they acknowledge that, um, you know, Narita Boy had saved the uh, the Digital Kingdom. Uh, he and Lionel then team up to track down him and the credits end with To Be Continued. Uh, they hop in a literal tri-chroma Themed DeLorean and ride off. <laughs> I couldn't imagine a better, a better way to do that. Um, oh, I love the DeLorean, and I think it's just like you can imagine this game ending with like, oh, you finished the threat, and oh, you're reunited with your father. It's like, no, well, it'd be even cooler if you hopped in a DeLorean instead. <laughs> exactly. Um, and when in doubt, add a DeLorean. Uh, the '80s mantra. Um, <laughs> But I think it's equally interesting that they have that to be continued there because we just found out that there is a sequel in the works, uh, Haneda Girl. Um, oh, is which... that a sequel? I heard that it was, um, you know, by the same team, but I didn't know it was supposed to be the continued bit. I don't know if it's necessarily a direct continuation so much as like maybe a side story, um, but I understand it's supposed to take place in the same continuum. Okay. Well, that sounds very interesting. I look forward to picking that up. Yeah, me too. I mean, given the strength of this title, I for sure will. You know, thinking about the memories uh, that you'd see with the creator, I will I will say the cult one caught me a little bit off guard. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't really see that, like, in all of the other sort of um, parts of the mind that the... Um, you explored of the creator like the the cult thing came out of nowhere for me too like all of a sudden he's the leader of the red cult and they were very vague about that like they said that it was him that sort of may have done that or they did it together or you know he doesn't know if uh him was conjured from the code or that he actually wrote him or 
you know, what the deal there is. And I wonder if that's something they might explore in a future, you know, Haneda Girl or a sequel or something like that. No, I like, I did like they left a little bit of mystery. Like there was that line where the creator said, like, I don't know if I created him or found him. Um, but there was kind of like uh, one of the earlier memory scenes where you see like Lionel programming and him is there behind him, like like the evil shoulder angel sort of thing. So the cult thing caught me off guard, a little bit of a tonal shift from what was before it, but I don't think in the end it it felt out of place. Yeah, I, I I don't think it felt out of place either. I just think it sort of like maybe didn't track with the rest of those memory scenes that we had seen to that point. You know, like we saw also the true. yeah it it's we saw a lot of really like well done emotional set pieces in there, and I don't think any of them built up to the the cult scene. Um, yeah. I wonder if there would have been a way to hit those narrative beats that the cult scene was trying to go for without being like, and he's an evil cultist now. (laughs) Well, you know, I I don't know if this is like at all relevant to that, but like the first discussion of like the red in his life, from what I recall, was in one of the earlier scenes where, you know, his father was saddened by the the loss of his mother. Um, And... You know, I think he's they're using that as a, a thematic stand in for like pain, grief, loss, like you said up much earlier. Um, and at that same time, like he was experiencing those same emotions because his wife had recently left him with their child, right? So, mm-hmm. like, pain, grief, loss. He's literally like divorced dad. He's going into divorced dad mode, and therefore the red has consumed him. <laughs> like, I, that, that's kind of all I'm getting from that. I mean, but. that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, the whole arc of the narrative makes sense, but, like, there might have been other ways to show that he was divorced at dad mode other than founding a gigantic (laughs) cult that you get arrested for. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, with that, uh, let's sum up our thoughts on Narita Boy with a three-word review. My three-word review for Narita Boy is 80s Tribute Tale. Narita Boy is a gorgeous, pixelated platformer that is consciously uninterested in playing the Metroidvania role. Although there is some backtracking, it's never to discover new collectibles or small power-ups. Instead, the game is always propelling you forward to see the next gorgeous pixel-out background or fight the next set-piece battle. It feels like a very generous game. One that I would have enjoyed with half of the enemy designs or worlds or power-ups. Instead of trying to justify an upgrade by letting you use it in previous or future areas, it keeps its upgrades uh, short, sweet, fun, and done. That works as a good description for the game, too. It's bold like a neon blue jacket in a nightclub. Check it out. (laughs) Couldn't agree more. My three-word review for Narita Boy is... Earnest, evocative nostalgia. Narita Boy is a pretty straightforward retro platformer. It has serviceable, if repetitive, combat, simple puzzles, and traversal mechanics, and a fair bit of backtracking. None of that matters, though. The magic of Narita Boy is in its art, thematic strength, and a heavy dose of nostalgia. 
it is surprisingly story-driven and dialogue-heavy and treats its world with enough gravity and earnestness to draw you in. But all of that is in service to the real star, an absolutely gorgeous display of pixel art and creative 80s-inspired design. It is an absolute love letter to the aesthetic of 80s neon-soaked retro-futurism. This is not only seen in the environment, character, and level designs, but in the absolutely incredible soundtrack, one that I'm already looking forward to listening to as I edit this. This game makes me recall a scene from one of my favorite TV series, Mad Men. The protagonist addresses a room full of potential clients with a memorable quote on nostalgia. He says, In Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It is a twinge in your heart far more powerful than memory alone. Overall, I'm glad to have experienced Narita Boy. And while I don't think it's perfect from a mechanical perspective, it is an earnest and evocative tribute to a bygone era's techno-nostalgia of the highest order. Nice. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and rest in force. liked the idea of this game a lot more than I liked playing it. <laughs> um, and I no, liked, I hear you. Yeah, I liked looking at it more than I liked how it felt in the hands. Um, I don't know like, if that means that there's maybe a genre mismatch here, or at least for me, or what, but I'm either way, I'm really glad to have experienced it. So, yeah, like, you said you... That you you weren't like the hugest fan of this game, but also that you were glad to have gone through the bits you did. Like I don't think there's when we were talking about this earlier. I don't think you missed anything by not finishing off the game. Like getting as far as you did in the game through the Blue Kingdom. It sounds like um, yeah, halfway through it, the red. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah, like you um you definitely saw what the game had on offer, and. Mm that the strength of that offering is just well worth experiencing by itself. Like this is a game you can take a look at the trailer on YouTube and if you don't get the music or the pixel art, then you're not going to get this game. Yeah, I totally agree. Like it has surface appeal and then rewards that deeper read. And, you know, I I gave it I gave it what I what I needed to to get to that to the point where I feel like I got what I needed. Who knows? I I, I may end up revisiting this to finish it off because I don't feel like there's a particularly steep learning curve. Um, I think it was just maybe a place and time thing that caused me not to to go through the final finale in this one. Oh, and that's totally fine. I mean, I kind of think there's a completionist streak that does discredit to gamers in some ways mm-hmm. like uh, yeah they'll be a little masochistic uh in being like well i don't like this game but i'm 90 percent of the way through so i'm gonna <laughs> keep on playing it's like well no you can uh you know this isn't like a 
there's no test on this at the end of it. You can just play it while you enjoy it, and it doesn't have to be something you play till the end. You're saying there wasn't a test? Well, then what is this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Optional. That's what we call it. That's a good point. It's extra credit. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I think while while we're on the... uh, things I liked about this game tilt I just want to say like there's an absolute treasure trove of references in this game that I didn't get a chance to bring up so I figured I might name off a few and see if you you found them as as well okay Um, so uh, the title screen first things first Um, you could interpret this either as the title uh, you know poster for the original Star Wars or Tron you know it just has the um, light bursting into the sky from the protagonist's hand sort of situation Um, I already mentioned Wild Stallions obviously a reference to Bill and Ted um, the, the servo horse is just an apple too with legs um. <laughs> I've missed all of these so far so this is great keep them coming I mentioned the uh, son rescuing the father from the red Star Wars um, mm. floppy disks they're littered throughout this game they're icons they're keys they're power ups uh, a walkman is the autosave icon um, <laughs> the first stallion boss you face is called VHS Lord VHS and he wields a staff with a VHS <laughs> taped to the top of it now, hang on. If it was going to be true 80s, it would have been Lord Betamax. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the superior platform. Um, and on top of that, there's a ton of uh, enemies and characters that look like Transformers, and all of them sound like the Transformers sound wave when they talk. Um, and then finally, of course, the DeLorean with the trichroma on the side. A very obvious and wonderful reference. Uh, those were uh, some of the ones I clocked, um, but really fun stuff. Hmm. And just kind of like, uh, I guess for me, it was the kind of like early video game era sort of thing where you can still have one guy create a console and create <laughs> a video game for that console. Like, sure, they have to be a programmer genius to do that. But like, can you imagine doing that today? Oh, absolutely not. No, it's like the same thing with cars. Like back in the day, you could work on a car and customize it and sort of you know make it your own and you know you could basically be responsible for its upkeep from start to back order the parts you need and and do all the maintenance yourself and nowadays you need like computer programs diagnostic kits different types of wires firmware updates it just it's completely outside the realm of one person being able to handle all of that Um, such as complexity in the modern economy everything is sort of mediated through gigantic corporations who have these people with deep skill sets and all of them are sort of alienated from the final product yeah and you know 80s were better about some of those things i guess (laughs) maybe not all of them well you know um there's something to be said about the ability for specialization to drive like increasingly complex systems and give us increasingly amazing things um, but it's just the way that like that is filtered down into like your lived experience with said thing and how much control you have over your life as it regards said thing, you know, right to repair and all that, um, that ends up dictating how good it is for anyone on a day-to-day basis. And that is a soapbox that is entirely aside from creating a video game in your garage. <laughs> <laughs> 